Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Die Hard on a Black, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Philip Gawthorn, and with me as always is Liam Billingham, and today's film is True Lies. It's Die Hard in an action comedy spy romp. That is not my cleanest Die Hard in a that I've ever done, but it's a good summation of this movie. Ah, Phil, how you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, it isn't the cl- it isn't the cleanest Die Hard on a blank um, scenario, but we will get to uh, a lot of the links between between the two films. But before we do, we'd love to uh, introduce our very special guest. One of my favorite writers on film, one of my favorite people to talk to about movies, could talk about movies forever, and I could talk with him about movies forever. Critic at Vulture and New York Mag, Bilga Abiri. Hi, Bilga. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thank you uh, for having me. I, I was I was hoping we'd just t- keep talking about Tenet, but... <laughs> well, we live in a Twilight world. <laughs> we live in a Twilight uh, world. It'll come up, I promise. Yeah, it's great to have a Tenet head here on the podcast. Um, and we've talked a lot about Christopher Nolan, but we have never talked about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I assume you're a Schwarzenegger guy? I am a Schwarzenegger guy to a certain degree. It's funny. I had a youth cinephile trajectory that's maybe the opposite of how other people had it. I grew up watching art films, classic movies, serious dramas. And my family, in my family, we looked down on the kind of stuff that Arnold Schwarzenegger tended to do. 80s action was not our thing. One day, however, mysteriously, I still have no idea how this happened. Somebody must have brought it and just left it there. A store-bought VHS of The Terminator just magically appeared in our basement. And I watched it. And I was like, hey, this is actually pretty good. And after that, I I sort of watched his movies. And I'm not one of these people who just like lives by Commando, for example, which is not a movie I particularly like. I, 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 I do like Predator a lot. Not the biggest fan of like the Conan movies, you know, so mm. so I was, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a discriminating Schwarzenegger fan, I guess you would say. But 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 as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate those movies more like a movie like The, the Running Man. When I first saw it, I was like, well, this is crap. And and now I can appreciate a movie like that more, which is funny because like you're supposed to like those movies as a kid and then you grow out of it. And I sort of grew into being able to appreciate stuff like that. I, yeah, I totally get that. I've I've had that with Van Damme in an odd way. It, it's See? like sometimes retrospectively you like get weaned on on their on their stuff because it's just it's there's such time warps and they're so different to what's going on now and they're so sort of specific. So I do I I do get that. But yeah, yeah like no, Van Damme's you, a good uh, example. Van, Van Damme, like I yeah. didn't I didn't give a crap about Van Damme until he did Hard Target because I was a John Woo fan, and then I was like, all right, well, I guess Van Damme's kind of interesting now and. You know, maybe I should pay attention to it. And then, you know, 
still, most Van Damme movies I don't like, but I love that he exists and I will happily watch those movies even if I don't necessarily think they're wonderful, you know? Where are you on True Lies? Do you remember seeing it for the first time? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was a, I was a James Cameron fan. I love James mm. Cameron. I mean, I, obviously Terminator I'd seen, but I, Aliens, before I discovered The Conformist, Aliens was my favorite movie of all time. Um, so I was very into James Cameron. Uh, Aliens, Abyss... I loved, I was an ocean kid. I was a, I was Cousteau generation ocean kid, obsessed with the ocean, obsessed with sea, obsessed with huh. diving and stuff like that. So for me, growing up, the two filmmakers that I actually really loved, or the two sort of pop filmmakers I really loved were James Cameron and Luc Besson, both of whom had, had been scuba diving instructors, you know, before becoming filmmakers. So I did not um, know that. Yeah, and they're wow. both, they're, both their films are, you know, just infused with the love of the sea, even even when they're not, you know, making sea movies. The way I remember True Lies, though, was, I remember I, I went and saw it like opening weekend or something um, in the theater. But my impression of True Lies at the time was, you know, it was almost like, it seemed like Schwarzenegger almost needed a hit. Because um, I think he'd done, was it Last Action yeah. Hero at this point? Yep. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was the sense that he sort of had to go back to J.C., to sort of help kind play of, the hits, Arnold. Right. Yeah, yeah. Very, and that's kind of how it, how the film felt, really. Um, you know, and I and I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but it did feel like okay, this is like they're 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 going for a cash grab here. But I'm totally fine with it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I love this movie. I saw it with my dad opening weekend. I remember seeing it with my dad opening weekend. I remember my dad thinking Tom Arnold was the funniest human being that had ever existed. And he's amazing in this movie. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get into it. Yeah. And then this was a huge rewatch. Like, I almost didn't have to rewatch this last night to prep for this, except that it had been a couple years. Right. But, I mean, the VHS mainstay in my house, on the TV, all the time. Much to my mother's chagrin, I will say. <laughs> Just my point of view. Phil, is this a... I mean, you love this movie, right? Yeah, this. this I saw it when it came out also with, with my dad. And, um, yeah, instantly, instantly fell in love with it. I think it actually became my favorite film until I saw um, Pulp Fiction, which, which... And then that sort of took me in a slightly different direction. But for me, True Lies was like a top five movie for a very, very long time. And like you, Liam, I, I almost didn't need to didn't need to rewatch it because it's pretty deeply embedded into my psyche. Totally. You know, beat by beat, you know, this whole this whole movie. I love this movie. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. But there's also there's a lot of fascinating things to unpack with it. But while we're talking about dates. Shall we do our top line fact check and tell yes. the people a little bit they need to know an, about this? I have an interesting movie. I have a particularly interesting fact about it because True Lies had its wide release on July 15th, 1994, which was um, two weeks after our last film, Blown Away. But it was six years to the day after the release of Die Hard in the summer of 1988. And it's uh, also the same studio as we'll, we'll talk about. It was written, produced and directed by James Cameron based on the 1991 French film La Totale, directed and co-written by Claude Zidi. Uh, Stephanie Austin was also a producer on the film, which of course stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Arnold, Bill Paxton, Art Malik, and Tia Carrera on, on an estimated budget of between 100 and 120 million. Uh, it grossed $378.9 million. Have you US. guys seen the French film? I have not. 
unavailable. I couldn't yeah. track it down. I watched the trailer and I sent it to you just because yeah, some, some, some of the imagery is absolutely direct and some of it is clearly just taken as the a very loose inspiration for, for James Cameron's ver version of the essence of that story. How familiar are you with it? Uh, I saw it. I saw it back then. I saw mm. it because I knew True Lies had been based on it. I don't remember anything about it, um, which which can mean any number of things. Either that I wasn't paying attention, or that you know it was so much like True Lies that it didn't. It just kind of blended into the same thing. Um, but yeah, I don't remember. I I do remember like tracking it down and watching it, but I don't remember anything from like what it was actually like. Um, and I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen any trailers for it or anything like that. I haven't re tried to revisit it over the years, although I keep saying I should, you know. I, I would have loved to watch it for this, but um, it's not available anywhere, anyhow, seemingly. Uh, just just the trailer, which will give, if anyone's curious, will give you a kind of crash course of this, some of the tone, and which is quite different. I think it's much more of a broader comedy but it does also seem to have kind of nas a nasty edge to it i mean this is a broad comedy to be honest like the scene when he talks to the horse i was like oh my god i forgot he lectures the horse about being a bad like this movie is absolutely ridiculous well, it features the, the scene that to me is like a tonal it somehow it still works but tonally it's like breaking massive rules when he breaks the binoculars um that's like cartoon stuff yeah you know and that shouldn't work but because the film is so outlandish, uh, I think it does all feel weirdly tonally in sync, at least to me. Um, but yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll get in, we'll get into all that. Um, Should we talk a little bit about the film's diehard DNA? Yes. So I just mentioned one of them. It was made by the same studio, 20th Century Fox, even shares the same release date. It plays with the regular guy, in quotes, action hero archetype that was established by Die Hard. I want to talk a bit more about that later. Um, the villains are, again, terrorists. That was something that, as discussed previously, wasn't actually that common before Die Hard. I think there was only three films that I could name from the 80s that dealt explicitly with terrorism that were pre-Die Hard. Um, now, every single film is about, every, almost every action film is about terrorism. Um, the actor playing the main villain was uh, part of the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company, again. Um, we have a prolonged action sequence in and around a massive skyscraper. Mm. It's also fundamentally um, a love story between a husband and wife who are emotionally estranged. It begins at a lavish party that's quickly interrupted by violence. And Here's it my invitation. I had to. I had to do it. I had to do it. It's important. Just a couple of other things worth noting. We were talking about Hard Target a moment ago. The DP, Russell Carpenter, previously shot Hard Target for John Woo. And it has a trio of all-star editors on this movie that are be, will be familiar to action movie fans. Conrad Buff, Mark Goldblatt, and Richard A. Harris, who together uh, cumulatively worked on numerous Die Hard on a Blank style films, including The Last Boy Scout, which we've covered, Last Action Hero, which we've covered, and The Rock, which we are... Heading going towards to with cover. potentially a special guest. Potentially um, a guest. It may not be a million miles away, but I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> um, so, yeah, quite a lot. Again, one of those films that on face value you might think, how is this a diehard on a blank film? It's kind of a stretch, but actually, again, under the action movie microscope, quite a lot of diehard DNA up in I there. I have a question. Do either of you guys know much about the production of this movie? Like, I'm just so curious because I don't remember much, but this movie was huge and has to have been like an absolute n nightmare of a production. The thing I remember was there was a lot of coverage about the cost. It right. was a very expensive movie by the standards of, you know, 1994. Um, it was, 
I don't, I don't know if it was like the most expensive movie ever up until that point. Because first hundred million dollar movie, that's for sure. Was it okay? Because because Waterworld is is the year after is Waterworld ninety mm-hmm. five. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Waterworld hasn't come out yet. So, but but I remember. Can I and I remember when it was a hit. There was this question. Oh, it's a hit, but is it a big enough hit? Like, is it going to be one of those movies that just like basically breaks even? And I think that's basically what wound up happening. Because well, I have you know. a, I actually had a thought about that when I was looking at the box office figures because you know we talked we just did Speed uh, two episodes ago, which was a budget of and Chris Tapley could probably tell me down to the to the dollar and cent, but I don't know. Does that guy uh, know that much? Yeah, about Speed? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love Speed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Approximately 35 million and grossed, I think it was 350 million. And this film cost 100 million and grossed 390 million. So while it it actually, it technically made more money, it it grossed more. The profitability um, for Speed was like insane. Speed was way, way, way more profitable than this movie because it was, it was an expensive production, but it still was a huge hit. And I think this is just, this is Cameron just, you know, basically getting carte blanche post Terminator 2, which was like one of the biggest films of all time and that grossed something like half a billion dollars. And so this, I think, was essentially um, Cameron getting carte blanche after the gigantic success of Terminator 2. And I, I specifically remember a quote from him that was to the effect of, um, you know, some people say less is more. Um, I disagree. More is more and too much is never enough. And and that to me sort of encapsulated, I think, the spirit of the film itself and the attitude towards production budget and just the general grandiosity of this whole this whole enterprise. It was the, the thing about it, the, you know, this was Schwarzenegger's era of getting paid in things like, you know, 747s it's like this was his grandiose era so i imagine he just cost a lot and at this point you know cameron i'm sure cost a lot too so you know this is one of those cases where it's i mean the the movie itself is huge and the the pyrotechnics are, are huge but also like the talent is being paid just you know buckets of money it's an i I remember a specific thing about that i think when it was one an interview where uh, James Cameron and Arnold are like, you know, uh, chopping it up at some interview. And, and he said to him, um, the the trailer that Arnold had for Terminator 2, his personal trailer, was more than the entire budget for the Terminator, the original yeah. movie, to, to your point. You know, that What's, was that was the era of excess that we were in here. And um, I'm here for it. He's very good. What's special about Arnold, I think, is that there he has a reality distortion field around him. You know, he yes. he he gives an Arnold performance, right? right. It shouldn't work. <laughs> this guy with this thick Austrian accent, I mean, everything about it is is if you wrote it out on a piece of paper, it would sound totally wrong. Like how does how does this guy walk into this place not getting noticed? He's enormous. He speaks with a thick Austrian accent. You know, it's like all these things and his movements are not naturalistic movements like another actor couldn't do them and get away with it he gets away with it because just the the whole gestalt of being arnold at this point especially now you know after he's done these movies i mean that's what a movie star is he makes it work nobody else could I, i don't think anybody else could make that work and yet it works it works it's the reality distortion field of arnold you know 
I think Cameron realized the same thing in this movie. Like in Terminator and Terminator 2, you know, he first of all, he makes him a killing machine and completely changes his image, right, yeah. from the Terminator. And then in Terminator 2, he twists it again. He's like, he's back to being the hero. But he doesn't necessarily change too much about what he does performance And in this, it's like, I'm going to cast him as an everyman living in D.C. pretending. It's like, it's such a smart I'm use of you, Arnold. It's and I want to so get good. into this, and we'll get into it in our in our anatomy of an action movie section in a moment, but like this is the diehard effect. And we'll get into that right after this break. We're back, and let's get into our section, anatomy of an action movie, where we list the tenants. We live in a twilight world. I'm going to let you guys do it. This is your thing. <laughs> we live your... in a twilight world and... Uh, there, uh, there are no... Oh, God. Oh, I'm, oh no. I, I've gotten too little... There sleep. are no friends at dusk. I was going to say there are no allies at dusk. And I'm like, but that doesn't sound I'll right. I'll give it to you again. Yeah. I'll give it to you again. We live in a twilight world. There are no friends at dusk. Yes where we list the tenets uh, of an action movie. The first one is the premise. Phil, what's the premise of True Lies? Yeah, so the premise of the movie is a seemingly unassuming computer salesman named Harry Tasker is actually living a double life where he's also an international super spy. Uh, he has managed to keep this all secret from his wife, Helen, and daughter, Dana, for 15 years. But due to circumstances beyond his control, the lie is finally exposed, thrusting Harry, Helen, and Dana into grave danger. So good. Um, yeah. So for me, though, I, I mean, I, this is such a fun idea. And to, you know, the point that you were just making, I think because of the Arnold reality distortion field, it, you almost lean into the absurdity of the fact that uh, you know, yes, who would believe he's just this boring guy? But the film is so abs absurd intentionally that it, you, you just kind of own it, right? It 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 totally works. I think it's such a fun idea. Um, I but what I will say is I generally have a little bit of an antipathy towards light-hearted spy capers because I prefer this sort of techno realism of the early Jack Ryan's and the Jason Bournes. But this movie absolutely nails it for me. And uh, I think it's such a fun idea. And for me, the, the and then I want to kick it over to you guys, but what this movie is about, uh, uh, what, what I find it is so clever about it is that it's using the tropes of a spy story. And spy stories are never, inevitably about fake identities and duplicity and lies, hence, hence the title and a web of lies used, subterfuge, you know, which is used to disguise a true intention. Using those tropes from the espionage genre as a filter through which to explore the complexities of a modern marriage. To me, that's the genius of this conceit, and of course, mm. it came from the the French the French film. But this doubles down on it and and makes it makes it huge. To me, that's the genius at the heart of it. If I was quoting another friends from another podcast, I'd say that's the the eye of the duck scene, down to that scene with the interrogation. Right? What if you had your partner in a situation where you could ask them the most intimate questions? that you would never ordinarily get a truthful answer on just because of the way society works and just for the day-to-day, -day, what you need for, you know, just for relationships to work. That to me is like the the real essence of what this film is, is exploring. And to me, I think that's absolutely fascinating and brilliant, you know? So I think it's a phenomenal premise. I think you're absolutely right in terms of the fact that, you know, it's using this heightened gonzo out of control spy caper adventure 
to drill down into something more intimate. Um, and obviously, you know, Cameron is Cameron made the abyss, you know, which is not as well until its very ending, not as crazy initially, much more in the vein of the kind of the techno thriller uh, mm. stuff that that you were saying you prefer, Phil. Um, but you know, again, there it comes down to like the story of a of a marriage that's been falling apart, and you know, it's um, so it's this is clearly on his mind. <laughs> And it's it's always fascinating to me to watch Cameron movies because they are so popular minded. I mean, they're they're obviously very popular. They tend to make a lot of money, especially you know the last couple of decades. Um, but um, but you can always sense that there's something very personal in them. Yeah. Right. And I think that's become even truer over the years. Like I, I mean, I. I think I said this in my review. I think Avatar Way of Water is like the most personal movie he's ever made, you know. But uh but True Lies is also incredibly personal. I mean there there is and that's I think what makes it work so well and why I think people gravitate towards these movies and why they do become hits is because you sense even beneath all the ridiculousness he really cares about Whatever it is at the heart of the movie, he cares about it. And of course, he turns everything up to 11. I mean, everything is out of control. I mean, the interrogation scene is the most kind of naked, raw intimidation uh, interrogation scene ever. You know, I mean, the, the, the striptease scene is just like, just goes completely overboard. You know, every, right. I mean, the, this whole film at every, at any given point is completely over the top. But like, you know, because because of all the crazy over the top spy caper stuff, he buys himself the goodwill or at least kind of expands the palette of the film so that when it goes over the top with the, the intimate divorce marriage stuff, we buy it, you know, because it's it's totally consistent. Well, it's like a farce. Phil, you described yeah. it as a yeah. farce before we talked. And, and I, that's very French. Right. And yeah. like the fact that it's based on a French film and so French in some cliches and also true ways have always made films about love and intimacy and being naked with your partner and, and the philosophical ideas of that. But it's so American. <laughs> this it's is so American. Like it, it, it's so American because I mean, think about, you know, Bill Paxton's character and sort of the back and forth in that. I mean, him talking to his wife and, and spying on his wife and discovering that his wife is, contemplating having an affair and then confronting the man that she's having the affair with or that is trying to seduce her. That feels very French, right? Like you right. describe that, that feels like, okay, uh, very French, right? But who is this guy? He's a used car salesman placed by Bill Paxton and just the, the, the dialogue between them and just how over the top and crazy it is. And, you know, Bill Paxton's, you know, descriptions of like her butt yeah, and everything it's pretty ribald that's <laughs> that's, yeah. that's american <laughs> very american that's very american so that's that's why i mean it has this french um you know it has this french dna but but at heart it's it's so american everything in it is just you know taken to an extreme well and also he's like good with a gun and can kill 45 people in two seconds yeah, like yeah. it's just it's the american blockbuster riff on the french oh, yeah. sex farce essentially As, yeah, right? exactly like, yeah but I also think the reason I asked you about DC is because 
DC has photographed, by and large, in this movie as this beautiful place with amazing lighting and everyone wants to be there. And like, I couldn't help but think watching this that this is like a key text of the Clinton era Mm. in America. We're post George Bush, we're post Gulf War. Everything is cool. We figured it all out. Iraq, Iran, and Syria are, are listed as like, you know, difficult parts of the world by Tia Carrera early in the movie. And the rest of it is not about the war abroad. It's about the war at home. And like, I think there's something brilliant in that the first 25 minutes of the movie, you're like, cool, this is a spy caper. And then all of a sudden, the most suspenseful scene is that brilliant, by the way, dinner scene where he's like, I dropped by your, your office today. And you weren't there. And she was like, oh, you must have just missed me. And she starts explaining it. And Cameron, the again, is over so the top, elaborate and, pushes and detailed. in on his <laughs> yeah. face. And like the whole time I was like, this is so quintessential American. Like the dad is suddenly alone at the table. He's a victim of his own mistakes. There's something rotten at the core of his marriage because of his, him lying. And like his daughter's gone. And what's so interesting about that section of the movie, which is my favorite section where he's kind of avoiding, like trying to figure her out is that all of a sudden he's wearing like sweater vests and she's on an exercise bike and he's home all the time. And just this like idea of like, yeah, the war is the one at home. It's not the one out in the world. Cause we solved all those problems, right? Like yay. Post Bush era, Clinton era, pre Clinton's impeachment for, for being, you know, for infidelity, which one way, one incorrect way to describe it. For the war at home, if you will. For the war at home, right? Like, it just feels so American in that it's about this moment of optimism and DC is, like, sparkling in it. It's so interesting. Well, this is, you know, you were talking earlier about how, you know, Die Hard is one of the first action movies where the villains are terrorists. Well, because, you know, there's this period, and Die Hard predates it a, a little bit, but still, I mean, there is this period... I've always called it, you know, the, 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 the Pax Americana period of cinema, right? And basically the Cold War ends, but before the Cold War ends, it's winding down, right? And the Soviets don't really make sense as villains anymore. Um, there really aren't that many others. I mean, there are, you know, there are terrorist incidents and stuff like that. But, you know, late 80s, early 90s through to September 11th, that's the period of the Pax Americana when, when, you know, the villains are sort of, the villains are either at home or they're sort of like, stateless. You know, right, stateless. like rogues. Yeah. And, and it's Splinter funny because, because, it's, things, yeah. because you can never, like, we can never be the underdogs in those cases, right? I mean, we're, it's like the U.S. government. I mean, this huge spy organization that Arnold Schwarzenegger is a part of, this like all-powerful, highly technologized force against like, like a van full of guys, you know? (laughs) You can never be the underdog in these circumstances. So you kind of have to play with that idea. But, um, you know, in terms of DC, I mean, you know, DC is this great center of power in this movie and others as well. And the Clinton era did sort of, it did feel that way. You know, crime has started to go down. So, because remember, I mean, I grew up in D.C. in the 80s when it was like, you don't go to D.C. Like, you know. My dad had a work trip there and someone told him to bring a gun. I'm not joking. Someone told my dad to bring a gun to Uh, D.C. And he he didn't because he was like, you know, that's terrifying. But I remember that being told to me as a kid. Absolutely. And I I remember I would, I mean, I would go to like all movie theaters I liked were in D.C., they were in the nicer parts of D.C., but it was very much, I mean, I would go by myself as a kid. That's the, other thing it's like you know it's like a 12 year old just like wandering around dc um but but there was always the sense that like okay 
you can go here, but don't turn this way and go two blocks down because then you're in trouble, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it is beautifully shot, which is also, I mean, I love DC. I think DC is one of the most beautiful picturesque cities in the world, but I do wonder, like sometimes I'm, sometimes I'll see a movie where DC is so beautifully shot. I'm like, Eh, that probably wasn't DC. That was probably Philadelphia or something. You know? Well, they also make it feel like it could be anywhere in America, yeah. right? Like the house, the tree, the 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 streets are like you know lined in this way. That's like a cul-de-sac, mm -hmm. and you just feel like you're in America, right? right. It only yeah. becomes DC when it explicitly becomes mm -hmm. DC. But when well, it does, you're like, oh man, I want to I want to go there. That looks there's great. A, there's a sort of what you know bringing what's coming into focus for me from these different sort of things you were saying. And Liam, you, earlier you you referenced um, off mic, I think we were talking on the phone the other day, and you referenced like, well, how close was this to American Beauty, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a film that's also about the rot at the heart of iconic, idyllic, suburban Americana, right? right. Kind of everywhere USA to some extent. This is the classic nuclear family unit, and there's something rotten in the heart of Denmark, right? Um, it, Hamlet it's reference, 41 minutes in. I'm proud. That's good. <laughs> there it only you took go. 40 minutes, That's for the but we real got there. Real on a blank All we need head, is so. Chekhov now and we're good. We're going to be in really good shape. But um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's playing with those ideas of uh, classic American puritanical uh, suburban family structures, sort of the 50s idyll and sort of uh, applying them to iconically American you know, movie and genre, the action genre, it makes for a really interesting stew. An iconically but, American movie starring the most Austrian man who's ever lived. Well, so should we, should we talk about our hero? There's nothing more American than, than an immigrant story. And he, so, is, yeah, he somehow becomes the most American man who ever lived. Well, yeah, let's get into our hero section and we can unpack some of this, some of this more. So the hero of the movie is Arnold as Harry Tasker, a uh, secret agent masquerading as this boring, in quotes, computer salesman. You know, the point... I wanted to make about this was if in terms of the diehard effect, right? And what you were saying before, the inherent absurdity of casting someone that is so, is literally, you know, larger than life, Arnold Schwarzenegger, gigantic bodybuilder, thick Austrian accent, not someone that could blend in as a spy or as a ordinary boring <laughs> he guy, He stands right? out more than anybody. He, exactly. So you just own it. And it was the same with The Terminator, which was originally intended to be uh, Lance Henriksen as a guy that stepped out of the shadows to blow your head off and was a nondescript guy. Same with Total Recall, as you said. Richard Dreyfuss was the original archetype for that character. He was supposed to be an accountant. When they cast Arnold, they make him a construction worker, right? But the point that I was I was going to make was that post Die Hard, there's this paradigm shift in the action movie hero uh, genre, and it goes from this sort of ubermensch, you know, to ordinary Joe. If you look at the differences between the roles pre and post Die Hard when John McClane reset uh, yeah. the, or established this new paradigm, right? You've got him as super soldiers in films like Conan, Terminator and Commando and Predator to pretending to be normal in films like Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Jingle All the Way, where he tries to act as if he's like a Tim Allen-esque all-American dad in Minnesota. Great you know, movie. and it's like, Great <laughs> like, movie. <laughs> is Jingle All the Way a Christmas movie? Let's have a let, let's, It's let's Die Hard it. in a Christmas <laughs> store. I don't know. It's in a department I, store terrible. at Christmas. It's, it's absolutely terrible, and I watch it every year and wrap my I Christmas it. I've never seen it. I love it. I've oh, never seen I, it. I, I don't know. I remember it being delightful. Oh man, yeah, it, it's I delightful in the in this in the most crass and but awful way. But I think what way. you're pointing to is like 
the fact that Schwarzenegger really made made a meal out of doing different things in the '90s because he's always been such like an innovative guy and like from bodybuilding to movie star to governor, like he's been mm-hmm. he's reinventing himself. Yeah, and he but he, but he brings the joie, the, 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 like yeah. the je ne sais quoi of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Which actually I shouldn't say je ne sais quoi because it's like very obvious what Arnold brings to these parts. But he does. This is sort of. You're saying earlier, like at this point in his career, he's playing jazz, he has a persona, and he can do it, and everyone trusts him all the time to deliver. It's There's just no movie star like him. Well, I would also just go one step further and say that I, I, I wouldn't necessarily put it as playing jazz you know I, I that he's basically mastered two genres and they and they dovetail in this movie mm. because he'd done twins and mm. kindergarten cop um which was i think was 88 and then 90 so he's perfected comedy as as a way to branch out and mainstream broadly appealing studio comedies right then and he's also been an established action star this film allows him to do both concurrently and it's actually kind of makes sense that to some extent this was almost his his peak and arguably his last truly great film but i love we'll, we'll we'll talk more about that he's made some very good films and has some very good performances uh later in life i think he's got much better as an actor as he's got on and he was always he always did better with strong directors that would push him he was sort of egoless in in that sense you know when he worked with a mctiernan or uh or, or verhoven ding ding or um um Cameron, that's when he always did his best work. And he didn't mind doing take after take after take after take, especially with Verhoeven. It's like the reps you know, he used to, to do until he passed yeah, out. Yeah, he thing. was just like, use me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a piece of clay to be molded. He was, that was very egoless in that regard because he knew that he wasn't like a traditionally trained actor, right? He was bringing something else to it. So he, strong directors would push him to do really, really great work. And he's, he's, he's got better and better as he's gone on and has done some quite interesting quasi-experimental work in his later years where I think he is sort of playing jazz. But for me in this film, it, it's sort of just like, I've just nailed these two genres and this film allows me to combine my comedic mm. chops and my action chops. Fair enough. And it's kind of perfect, you know? And, and, and you're right because, you know, he is also gearing up for a career in politics at this point, right? I mean... I mean, I think he was already starting to yeah. think about it, you know, around the time of Terminator 2. And you're right. I just I, I pulled up his filmography here and, and, you know, True Lies really is kind of, I mean, it's kind of his last stand, if you think about it. I mean, Last Action Hero is, is, a, is a flop. He does True Lies. He does Junior the same year, which which I which I enjoy. Junior. People hate that movie. Um, and I have, I'm sure it's dated horribly, but. Um, no, I'm sure that's a really, really yeah. politically correct yeah. watch. You couldn't make 20- Junior today. Um, <laughs> the woke mob won't let you make Junior today. Um, but, you know, then he does Eraser, which I remember, like, was okay, but was not like a huge hit. And, and you know, Jingle All the Way, Batman and Robin, End of Days, The Sixth Day. You know, it's just like, it's just, you know, it just spirals. The wheels start down. to walk. I like Eraser and, and I like Batman off. and Robin, yeah. and I don't care who knows it. I like both of those movies. Right, but only weird people like those movies. <laughs> That's, <true. laughs> That's the That's thing. True. He goes from being like the most popular movie star and beloved movie star in the world to to movies. You know, some weirdo like you or me has to make a case for. You yeah, know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very comfortable in scene with you, Bill. Yeah. It's always true. No, it's very I, true right I now. mean, that's the thing. It's always, I'll, you know, people will all do, always do those prompts, like, you know, name the best, you know, the, the longest, you know, movie run by a filmmaker, and people, you know, they'll, they'll mention Kubrick, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, you know, Clockwork Orange, Doctor Strange of two thousand one, you know. Yeah. It, it, 
and in all those things, I'm like, I'm like the guy who has to hold John himself Ames. back. Yeah. No, <laughs> I have to hold myself back and saying, well, you know, the three he made after that are equally as good. <laughs> you know, <but> meanwhile, <laughs> totally. the three, you know, the three the guy made after that are like, you know, straight to DVD. <laughs> you know? Shingle all the way, eraser yeah. and oh, you the guy that says the, the Starship Troopers sequels <laughs> yeah. Are, yeah. are superior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Starship Troopers is good, but have you seen two, three, and four? <laughs> Those are pretty good. Okay, look, should we yeah. talk about should we talk about Let's, the lady please. Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie as Helen Tasker? Absolutely. She is She's amazing. One of the things that I remember hearing or, or when I watched the Arnold documentary is that he fought for her to have um, billing above the title yes. of the movie. And it was like, a, it was the first time that I think that had ever happened for her. And it was a huge deal. And I got to say that, like, she deserves it. She's incredible oh, yeah. in this movie. Bilga, what do you feel about this character? You know, it's interesting because, I mean, this movie comes out, you know, I'm 21, you know, when this movie comes out. And to me, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is the girl, you know, from totally, you know, from from Trading Places, and you know, uh, I mean, she's fish, fish called Wanda, fish called Wanda, like you know, we, we all had crushes on Jamie Lee Curtis, and, and this movie didn't change that. This movie absolutely <laughs> did not change that. But to me, in this movie, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, Jamie Lee Curtis is like older now, like like mm. you know, she's not the girl anymore. She actually is playing like. A woman, you know, right. which is like, you know, when you're 21, it's like, whoa, you know, people age and but they can still be hot. You know, it's like it's these she's things. 36 when this movie comes out, 36, like that. Yeah. 36, something like I that. She thought yeah, she was she's... a little. I thought she was early 30s, but 36, you know, um, but I didn't find it offensive. I actually found it kind of cool that they were you know, because Hollywood is so obsessed with like young women that they were actually, uh, you know, allowing this woman she's not middle-aged or anything like that but this this woman who is older by sort of hollywood starlet you know the girl in the action movie standards they're letting her be hot and gyrate and all this stuff like in that context at that time that actually did not feel offensive to me you know i actually found it kind of sweet and cool you know um and i mean she, she has so much fun with that performance and the movie is so over the top and the movie is so crazy like nothing mm -hmm. in the movie feels like a thing that would ever happen in real life. So, you know, when that's the when that's the tone of the thing, it's often hard for me to get offended. By the way, which we will also discuss when, you know, a subject nearer and dearer to me, the Middle Eastern terrorist figure shows up. I mean, you know, like I'm not offended by anything in this movie. This movie is a cartoon back when, you know, cartoons were the kinds of things that you didn't care about you know so right so it's it's so it's so over the top and crazy and cartoonish that there's nothing in it to get offended about because there's nothing in it that really sort of connects to reality right to me jamie lee curtis is an icon i one of the things i've always loved about her which i think is so refreshing is if you listen to her interviews she actually tells the truth mm -hmm. She actually says what she thinks and she doesn't nuance it through the filter of like PR, Hollywood, oh, yeah. generic bullshit. So her interviews are incredibly candid and she's just always struck me as someone that was just no bullshit, totally authentic, embraced her sense of self. She, whether that is her, from her early performances, like you're saying, Trading Places, she embraced her, you know, her sexuality on, on screen as she's aged. 
um, with the Halloween movies, the recent Halloween uh, sort of reboot remake trilogy, the first one in particular, I think she's absolutely exceptional. Not a shred of vanity, you know, basically playing a grandma, not trying to act as if she's 20 years younger. I just see she's such a sort of iconoclast in the best possible way in Hollywood. It just hasn't kind of has played the game, but played it her way um, to an expert degree she can do it all like i, I recently rewatched um blue steel mm -hmm. where, where she movie. is phenomenal yeah. catherine bigelow directed of course um she can do drama she can do comedy she can do horror she can do action she can do thrill she can do everything and her performance in this movie genuinely even though this is as you said, a sort of cartoonish, over-the-top, intentionally over-the-top movie. But her acting in the interrogation scene is like award-caliber acting. You know, it's it's so raw and honest and and powerful. She's really reaching inside herself and, and showing us something. So I think she is absolutely fucking spectacular in this movie. Yeah, and and also the other thing I, I I was reminded of is she is a movie star. Like her appeal is a movie star appeal. Like she's a she's not somebody who like disappears into a role. She's somebody yeah. who is kind of there is a you know there is a Jamie Lee Curtis essence. There's a Jamie Lee Curtisness that comes through in every part, which is sort of the the, the movie star dynamic, if you will. Same with like the reality distortion field of Arnold. Like he's never not Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know? And so so she has that still. So when she's playing the, the put upon submerged, you know, nerdy wife with like the glasses and everything, she's also doing a part. Like she's kind of, you know, there's this meta quality to that because we realize she also is playing she's doing the thing that, that Harry is doing, right? And she's it's like, this is Jamie Lee Curtis and she's playing this, you know, total nobody. So we know that she's going to sort of come out of her shell in some way. But what's funny is when she does, you know, or when she does kind of, when she, you know, does the, the, the striptease and all that, that's when her acting really kicks in. And, and, you know, we get a sense of just how tense she is, but then, you know, they're, couple of moments during that when you realize that she's starting to really get into it and and it's delightful i mean it's del yeah. like like she she gets into it and it's such a surprise when it happens uh because she has so managed she's to convince amazing you. in that scene it's yeah. unbelievable the of, and it's without a word yeah she's managed to convince you that she is this other character who jamie lee curtis could clearly never be and so that when she does become sort of a a more sort of forceful personality it's like oh my god <laughs> you know i know it's great it's, incredible. it's great it's incredible i wish they'd made sequels to this movie i don't know if they ever actually thought about it it's like almost setting it up at the end but i don't know if that's just that was just meant to be a joke or if they ever thought they would do sequels to it well you know who wouldn't be in the sequel to this movie is the sand spider <laughs> why Probably because it sounds scary, to quote. <laughs> I love that line. So our villain is Art Malik as Salim Abu Aziz, a.k.a. the Sand Spider. You know, he really works. He's great in the movie. He's great. But it doesn't play all that comfortably now. Like, it, it felt very almost weirdly like, okay in 1994 but that, I was also like a 12 year old boy so I, it's hard for me to say that I knew what I was what was going on I, I, I remember some people were offended by it in 1994 as well uh, and I was a little older so I was a little more into kind of the world uh, the world where people take offense um, and it was funny because like as a Middle Eastern I was like 
you know, like eating my popcorn. What are you guys talking about? This is great. You know, like, <laughs> like, like the one Middle Eastern guy. I'm like, hey, this movie watch the movie. Stop complaining, you know. Um, but again, it's so over the top that you can't take any of it seriously. I mean, it's like Air Force One, you know, is one of those mm. movies, right? Um, I mean, Gary Oldman in Air Force One is like, well, this, I mean, this isn't a thing that would ever happen. Now, of course, later when we get September 11th and everything, I'm like, oh shit, like crazy shit like this can happen, you know? Um, so then it becomes, like it becomes uncomfortable for that reason. But it's not uncomfortable because of anything in the movie. It, like the movie is innocent as far as I'm concerned. Like in that case, I'm like, I, I blame Al-Qaeda for making this uncomfortable, not the movie, you know? Um, right. Well, he's also stateless, right? They don't explicitly reference... A, I mean, they, they talk about Iran, Iraq, and Syria earlier in the film. Yeah, but it's not like he's working for a specific... Well, this is the one, it's Crimson sorry, Jihad. Yeah. It's Crimson Jihad, right? That's right. What, yeah, so, so it's like, you know, you think, you know, Black September and you think mm-hmm. Islamic Jihad. So it's like, I mean, it's it's meant to be sort of an analog of those places. Of course, you know, yeah. Of those, of those uh, organizations, which did exist. Like, it's not like they don't exist. I mean, some of them still exist. But, but you know, the scenario in the film and, and the you know, the tone of the film is so over the top that you can't, you know, you can't worry too much about. I mean, these characters are not realistic characters, even though obviously terrorism does exist and is a problem, you know? Right. I, I love your assessment of that. You know, I was really interested to get your your opinion on it. Um, he's an interesting guy in, in the UK. He's very, you know, very respected actor. He'd worked with David Lean. He'd been in Passage to... Passage to India, and um, he was a son of a surgeon who moved to London in 1956 and went got a scholarship at Guildhall and worked at the Old Vic and the RSC, as we mentioned, which is is not a path that's a million miles away from Alan Rickman in, in Die Hard. Yeah, um, great performance. I, he's I, really, I really, really think good. he's excellent in this film. He's, he's very frightening and does have shades of dimensionality to him here and there in, in one or two moments where there is like a, a human being there as well as a, a, a sort of archety- archetypal pantomime villain. Well, and also, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, he's surrounded by incompetence, you know, and, and, and. Battery did, as he's. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's a psycho himself, but also he's surrounded by incompetence, which is, I mean, he's a Disney villain, you know, like yeah. that's a Disney villain, the Disney villain, you know, Maleficent surrounded by these like totally incompetent ogres and stuff like that. Like that's a Disney villain dynamic, you know? Absolutely. Hey, we Phil, won't. take us into the action, please. It, the action in this movie is absolutely phenomenal. You know, this is kind of why you bought your ticket and it does not disappoint. What I know, what my sort of, you know, take on James Cameron is that, you know, and I've worked with filmmakers that are, that are like this, that have a similar quality where I call them like roller coaster builders, you know, and James, James Cameron's films, especially in this area, basically they spend the first two thirds building the roller coaster and the third act you're you're on it and it's flying and it doesn't stop. You know, they have he is the king or he's the king of many things. He's the king of the world, he's the king of the sequel and he's the king <laughs> of the third act. He is absolutely amazing at like sustained sometimes 30 to 40 minute finales. You know, this film kind of it splits it into two. It's almost orchestral. The, uh, it's like a symphony. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like like McTiernan, absolutely. like McTiernan. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's it. You know what I think is so amazing about Cameron is that in the world of Cameron, uh, a nuclear detonation is a relaxed interstitial moment between two phenomenal set pieces, well <laughs> right? Which is the 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 long sequence in the Florida Keys. And I just you know just to sort of touch on this for one second, then I'm going to step back. But I just I have to get it off my chest because 
you know, I, when I saw this movie, I say, I think I was, I was either 12 or 13. And the moment when they're the, the Tom Arnold and, Ar- and Arnold Schwarzenegger are in the, in the helicopter heading towards the Florida, Florida Keys, the bridge is there to intercept his, his wife and uh, try and take down the terrorists. And there's a shot where they call, you know, they've called in the Harrier jump jets and, and you stay in the helicopter and with the actors in shot, you see the Harriers fly past screen and that's the point where i reached a sort of cinematic ecstasy that that re, that sustained for the rest i didn't of the know film. what word you were going to use you know? instead of ecstasy yeah i, know. I, was, glad I was, was waiting for a, for a different moment. word uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. i was like where's this going where did phil go where did phil go well i mean it just it was one of the most exhilarating sequences i've ever seen in the cinema was that the, the way that the music builds that what was going on emotionally and we we sort of talked about this i, I forget which which movie we were discussing but when a film uh, like Apocalypse Now, the 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 Val, Ride of the Valkyries sequence is is sort of problematic and com- complex because it's an exhilarating sequence to sort of be a part of, but there's also something morally repugnant happening at the same time. In yeah, this, but it slaps. Like that's the thing that makes course, it amazing it's, it's, uh, is yeah, that exactly. you're like, oh, it's, it's incredible it's, and awful, right? At the same exactly. time, right? But in this situation, it, you're absolved of the guilt. Because you're on the side of the righteous in this moment, right? The way that the, the sequence is constructed. So you kind of get to be like the normal um, sort of ickiness you might find with this sort of pr- very militaristic sequence, you know, where you're sort of like, uh, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. And Aliens does this too, where it's like, you know what? Sometimes fucking hardware is badass and cool. And we're going to let you enjoy it guilt-free go nuts, you know? And that to me was like one of the, one of the, and Avatar actually does the opposite. Avatar has, because I think maybe Cameron's politics were shifted or the way he thought about things maybe shifted. Avatar actually has huge revulsion at the, the, the invading military forces and puts you on the other side, right? Puts you on the side of the underdogs in that situation. But in this sequence, it's like, just, just enjoy Harrier jump jets are fucking cool. And we're going to kick some ass. And it's great. I love it. Well, it's so good. But that's that's Cameron's whole thing. And I think it's always been his thing. I don't know if his politics have changed, but his whole thing has always been he absolutely, absolutely understands the appeal of like machismo and machinery and, you know, uh, you know, heavy weaponry. I mean, he absolutely, absolutely buys into the fetishization of that. But at the same time, he's a total hippy dippy flower child and i mean the avatar movies are supreme examples of this right like he totally gets the appeal of a quaritch right like he knows that in another universe quaritch is the good guy in one of his movies you know like he understands the appeal mm. of, of, a, of a character like that so he can play with that idea and he can he can give characters like that a, a camp appeal as well as some dimensionality so that you're not just sitting there watching just a, a, a one-dimensional villain. Um, but I, I will say, I think, like, I think that idea runs through through Cameron's film because because in Aliens, yes, the machinery, I mean, there's that great scene which was cut from the theatrical release but is in the director's cut where, um, you know, where Bill Paxton is, talking about all the great, awesome weapons they have before they land. And of course, they are all going to die, you know, and all the, all that machinery is going to be useless against you know, these creatures. So he knows how to undercut that stuff as well. And right. True Lies is, I think, maybe the only time, and maybe this is why it's so tongue-in-cheek, because it's possible that's the only way Cameron himself could have processed this movie. 
because he he understands that there's something inherently like horrible and problematic about all this stuff, right? I mean, he's a Canadian, like he's not. You know, I mean, well, he's yeah. such a progressive. He's such he's a, a total hippie progressive, in so right? many ways. Yeah, because right? he, the abyss yeah. is you know the, the macho Marines yeah. in the abyss are the bad guys, right? Well, and the corporations, the bad guy and aliens, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And the and Avatar, yeah, and Avatar, yeah. right? So, so so that all runs through his filmography, and I think in in True Lies he he kind of lets them off the hook a little bit so that it's basically this, you know, this enormous, powerful, secret national security organization run by Charlton Heston. These are the good guys. In any other right. James Cameron film, these these guys would be the bad guys, you know? Exactly, um, exactly. But, but he's he understands that he's doing that. And in order to sort of make this palatable, probably even to himself, he has to play it as kind of heightened farce, action comedy you know well this is why i think we should talk about the humor because i think you're absolutely right there's this critique in this movie through the tone right that like you can't take this seriously and like arnold schwarzenegger is a buffoon he has no idea what's going on in his life tarm arnold's who's I think both hilarious and sad in this movie in a weird way. Best has performance kind of like he's ever given, though. He's incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. in this movie and has to manage him. And then you have Grant Hesloff, who interestingly is like kind of adult. And then they have like a Nick Fury-esque leader played by Charlton Heston, who's like chewing, like chewing on the scene. Do you scenery. have any hard data? data? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love it. Like Love everything it. Yeah. about, there's it's, all these screens. It's Bondian it's just, like yeah. silliness. But it, you the know. whole time it's, well, you, the audience can't hear what I'm doing. Yeah. He's winking really, really hard because you're totally right, Bill. It's his way of saying, like, this is a joke. And also the, the the plot of the movie is like, oh, you think these guys are cool? Their marriages are a fucking disaster. One of them's on, like, his fifth wife and is, like, a sexist monster. Like, it's so keenly making fun of the people at the heart of it. But he still can't help it. Like, it's going to be awesome, too. Like... All right, gentlemen, let's put on our tuxedos. I'm going to wear the Tia Carrere dress. That's the move I'm going to go for. That's that's what I'm, I'm going to take this. off my wetsuit and reveal the, the tuxedo, tuxedo that I have underneath. Yeah. I'm actually it's... just going to be in the van eating snacks. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I don't want to tango. I couldn't tango to save my life. Let's give out our diehard Oscars, a.k.a. the Action Movie Awards. Phil, All right. just doing my drum roll. Um, yeah, the first award is the John McClane Yippie Kaye Award for Best Line. Um, and I have four nominees, uh, but feel free to add. Okay. Um, the, the, one, the one that caught me, and like I said, I know this film so well, but there, there were a few lines that just crept up on me that I didn't remember that just had me like, I was watching it alone, just absolutely laughing out loud. The bit where Simon, played by Bill Paxton, is is like, his, he's tried to get it on with Jamie Lee Curtis and she ultimately rejects him. And then he goes, if not for me, do it for your country. Mm. <laughs> and that's just like the most desperate last ditch attempt to get her to sleep with him. And it really just, this had me creasing. And then the one where also when Simon um, is like, they, you know, they've got the balaclavas on and they take him to like the reservoir and they look like they're going to throw him off the, the thing or whatever. And eventually uh, Arnold re- reveals his identity and lifts up the mask. And he goes, Simon goes, hey, it's you. Say, you're still interested in that vet at all? <laughs> you're still trying to sell him the used hey, car. Always like, very American. Bilga's point, I very, very that. American. You know, always be closing. David Mamet wrote that scene, yes. actually. It was a David Mamet scene, it turns out. So I had that one, and then I have, um, have, have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. Which was kind of, that was kind of an iconic line, which was uh, Harry to Helen. And then the final, the final coup de grace of 
you're fired. <laughs> yeah. Harry's line. It's got to be you're fired, right? I mean, it's that's pretty. I'm, vo- I'm voting for you're fired. You know, it's that's a top tier Arnold one-liner. Would that be your vote? That would be. I mean, if we're talking like actual movie one-liners, absolutely, that would be the one. But you know, I mean, Phil Paxton has so many great lines that are not, you know, not action movie one-liners. But he, you know, he apparently like was channeling his dad. Like apparently, his dad used wow. to talk like that. So you know, some of that stuff, like uh, got a pair of titties, makes you want to stand up and beg for buttermilk. Like all that <laughs> stuff. Like you know, apparently came from his dad, uh, which I think is. Hilarious. So I guess he was improvising it, uh, you know. Um, but, He's incredible. Uh, it's so. I mean, I, I I have a friend who quotes quotes that stuff at me all the time. Uh, Cameron found something in him as an actor that nobody else, I think, could find. I just think he's un- unbelievable. In I mean, yeah, he had so many collaborations with. Well, I, I, let's, I, I, let's, I feel like I only saw up. him in Cameron movies. You know, like I mean, yeah. he was in other movies, but like you know, he only ever really succeeded in Cameron movies, at least at first, and then he became a better known actor. But, oh yeah, Cameron oh. Cameron sees himself in Bill Paxton, which I think is wonderful, given the fact that he's always kind of playing a foil, you know? Right, totally, totally. Well, speaking of the, the late, great Bill Paxton, we are going to move over to our Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for stealing the film. And our nominees are Jamie Lee Curtis as Helen, Tom Arnold as Gib, Bill Paxton as Simon, and Grant Heslov as Fazil. Tough, like this is a tough category, no, guys. No, it's Tom Arnold. Sorry, Tom Arnold. You going for Tom Arnold? Movie. Yes, I am. It, you know, for me, it's a toss-up between Tom Arnold and Bill Paxton, because I remember at the time this was this was a real stretch for Bill Paxton. Like everybody was yeah. really shocked at. Bill Paxton's performance in this, whereas Tom Arnold is doing a kind of Tom Arnoldy mm, performance, that's true. although he is killing it. I would give him the Oscar, but then say Bill Paxton steals the movie, you know? Um, mm. But um, uh, they're both so great. Tia Carrera, too. I mean, you know, well, she's, oh, coming she's amazing. She's, she's amazing. So she's coming yeah. up. All right. Well, I, I just want to say I, one quick thing, yeah, which yeah. is as an adult man now watching tom arnold what he was funny when i was 15 and now as an adult there's something like truly sad about it too like he's more on top of of arnold's marriage than arnold is yeah and like on some level you're kind of like he would like he actually calls and is like hey he forgot something back at the office whereas harry doesn't even think to do that stuff he buys the snow globe for dana like he's so he walks into the house and just like pours himself coffee like he wants to be a member of the tasker family and i find it like weirdly moving that And Cameron gives him the, gives him like an actual sort of sadness in the character. I think is good. Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, the 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 supporting cast in this in this film is next level. Bill Paxton and I will say like yes, he he often would could be very big, um, and which is what this film film needs. But also he was capable of like a simple plan for example, incredible movie, incredible performance as a leading role in a subtle Coen Brothers esque, you know, crime. That movie is um, devastating. Sad story. It's just wonderful. You know, he was a great guy. And I urge anyone to um, check out uh, Mark Maron's interview with him on WTF that was really captured the essence of the guy. Yeah. And conducted like three weeks before he died. Yeah. Yeah. Just someone who was so loved in Hollywood. Yeah. It was kind of like to the point where Mark Maron did like a, I just talked to this guy three weeks ago. Because it was, you know, yeah. it was interesting. Anyways, not to bring Great the mood guy. down, the Dick Thornburg yeah. Award. For Dick of the movie. And our nominees are um, Charles Cragen as Samir the Torturer, um, <laughs> Tia Carrera as uh, Juno Skinner, 
Good name. Um, I, I actually was going to put Chuck Heston in in the in the last category, but I'm going to throw him in here um, as uh, as Spencer Trilby and uh, Alicia Dushku as Dana. Um, that's a little bit harsh because she's yeah, just going. She's just she's, a yeah, kid, like, man. What are you doing, man? It, it was, it was tough. It, again, sometimes dick How of the movie is tough. I think, maybe, spent time with... I think maybe Philip is the dick of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> dick of the podcast, uh, yeah, apparently. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Phil's dick of, you win dick of the podcast for the podcast. Normally it's wow, me, so this is like a nice change. Show. Yeah, congratulations, <laughs> you win. Um, it's, yeah, Bill Guy, def- I want you to tell me your pick first. It's Tia Carrera. She's the dick. Yeah. I mean, she's she's the person who seems like somebody you could maybe trust at some point and or even kind of appeal to. And she just isn't having it. I mean, she's great. She's wonderful. But she's like, wonderful. She, she, she's the dick. She's a dick. Yep. She's also very like it's I mean, you know, it's like it was such a change from Wayne's world. And she's oh, yeah. so good. The tango scene is incredible. Like she's. Yeah, it's a really good performance. I mean, she's you know, a great wish- actress. She actually really is a, is a great actor. I mean, um, you know, maybe 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 has a bit of that Jamie Lee Curtis quality of somebody who sort of was was always kind of known as the girl, and so they they didn't ever get her the right parts. But then every right. once in a while, she'll get a part like this, which feels like a throwaway part. Like on page, on paper, it doesn't seem like anything, but she's mm-hmm. she's she's phenomenal. I had the the good fortune last year of interviewing both Jamie Lee Curtis and Tia Carrera, neither about true lies. Um, Why not? (laughs) uh, Because one was about everything everywhere all at once. And the other one was a, was a uh, Lilo and Stitch uh, uh, oral history, but um, you're a big fan of that movie. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, 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 Tia Carrera is basically, um, I mean, she's the star of that movie in a sense. Um, But uh, just a lovely person and, and a phenomenal actor. Yeah, totally. So she's our winner for that for that category. She's amazing in this movie. Um, our last category is the best death. Are you, do you feel comfortable? Let's do it. No, Bill this is what, I the, love this it. what yeah. the people want. Sometimes, this the, is guests, what the, people sometimes want. it's with the guests. They get a little nervous, but it, Bill goes in over front. So. It's, it's the best death presented by Marco. No more table. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thank you. All right. So um, I can so only. So stupid. Um, I can't. It's so stupid that I do that. <laughs> All right. I've got three. I've got three. This film is filled with deaths, a very high body count, but I, I picked three. Please add any if you can can think of them. Um, I've got Arnold turning a gasoline pump into a flamethrower with the use Hell of a muzzle yeah. flare, which is pretty, pretty sick. The driver of the truck on the bridge that tips over the edge and explodes after the yeah. unfortunate arrival of the errant seagull. And finally, Art Malik being stuck to a missile and blasted through a building into a helicopter. It's 100% Art Malik and it blasted on a rocket, right? Yeah. For me, yeah. You, you can't call this movie a success if that's not your kill of the movie because it's got because it's it's set up so elaborately. That said, the driver this last time I was watching yeah. it I was like that's a that's a that's a good because also I had I had the uh, the Italian job on the mind and you know the Italian job has that classic mm-hmm. you know, cliffhanger ending where they're stuck where they're teetering on the edge, um, and uh, and you know I just I just love the setup for that uh, but it's got to be Art Malik I mean come on yeah, <laughs> yeah no that's the choice that's yeah. it save your best death for last and that's when you get like a five star perfect yeah. perfect movie which this absolutely is in in my view. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to move into our final category, which is the double jeopardy trivia quiz. We'll be right back. 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. All right, we're back. Double Jeopardy quiz trivia. So, Bilga, I hate this part of the show, and I want to cut it, but the people like it. And apparently we do what the people like. Would you like to collaborate or compete on the quiz? You're probably, you should probably compete, because you know a lot more about it. Three quick questions. Me. You get a clue on each one. Very simple. I would collaborate. Oh, I, collaborate. I love yeah. this. Yeah, sure. oh, that's good. why you're tenant bros. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. For me, this you're is the Neil end of a beautiful the friendship. Protagonist. Right. Yeah. All right, guys. So you're going to collab. All right. Um, question number three. No, I'm going to do that. that <laughs> well, I, I, are we I'm doing this? Sorry. Yeah, I tenanted. Okay, yeah, yeah. I tenanted your asses. Yeah, you did it. No, I'm just, I'm just having uh, my long overdue mental breakdown. Um, this is the first question, but I was, it was number three on my list, but I'm going to do it first. Okay. True Lies features a scene where Art Malik's character jumps onto the wings of a fighter jet while it's in midair. In which Die Hard sequel does Bruce Willis also jump onto a fighter jet while the plane is in midair? I don't know. There's only five to choose from. I know. I don't know. Well, I remember, I mean, number two's in an airport. Um, but, but it's... But but it's like a commercial airport, so I don't. I haven't seen the Die Hard sequels in a long time, and I'm pretty sure there's at least one that I haven't seen uh, because after a certain point, I was just not going to watch anymore. Um, but uh, I'm going to go with two. Well, you're you I see where you're going, right? Because that. But you're right. You were right. Your first instinct was right because that was a commercial. That's a commercial plane, and it's not in midair. The the actual the. The answer is Die Hard 4, mm. um, a.k.a. Live Free and Die Hard, which, funnily enough, also involves the hero trying to save his teenage daughter. And it features a scene where he jumps onto, um, I think it's an F-16, or it's, it's a, fight, a fighter jet. Can I a, confess something on the 21st episode of this podcast that might make no. news in The Hollywood Reporter? No. Is that I, I can't no, confess No, we're trying it. to keep this quiet. Okay. <laughs> Never mind, I won't confess it. I'll save it for no. the actual... No, do because now people are going to be worried. I so. have not <laughs> seen Die Hard 4 or 5. Which will be make those episodes really interesting. Yeah, I tried to watch one of them, and I just it, it, maybe it was the wrong night. But I just I was out of the loop on Die Hard when those movies came out. They'll be I, very interesting to discuss. Yeah. Is, is Die one of them start started life as a not Die Hard movie, right, and became a, a lot die of them hard? did. Oh, okay, a lot of them I did. Two, yeah. two did, three, three did. did. And um, five I think did. four. No, four. Okay. I think five did. Yeah, I think four, did four was based on an article, but we'll get. We'll get. Yeah, we'll they're get all. There. We all have really interesting yeah. source material. Yeah, I have yeah. to say, like, they really, really do. But yes, so, I so somebody should do a diehard-based podcast and talk about them. Nah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good idea. There's no money in it. No <laughs> one's interested. Yeah, yeah, no one's interested. All right. <laughs> Question number two: True Lies composer Brad Fiedel is well known for his iconic work on the Terminator movies. But Fiedel also composed the score for which 1993 Bruce Willis action thriller. Why is it that I always go to Mercury Rising when the when it's, this is the it's question? It's definitely it's not, not Mercury Rising because that's Mercury four Rising. years later. I yeah. was going to say Striking Distance. Striking Distance is the correct yeah, answer. Yeah. All right. Um, our final final question. 
Um, we were just speaking about him. Um, okay, here we go. Bill Paxton has appeared in two different films that both take place in the Valverde movie Megaverse. <laughs> Can you name them? Is so, this one of them? No. No, it's not. So these are the films that for just for clarity that are all uh, that are all theoretically connected uh, as part of an extended cinematic universe. Valverde being the fictitious country that appeared in certain films. Is one directed by James Cameron? No. Oh well, then I don't know. Do you want the Sorry. clue? Do you want to? Do you want to call Al Powell? Bill, good to phone know? a friend. I, or you want to kick no, it around? I'm, I'm blanking on this. It's a toughie. I'm, All right, I, give it, give us a clue. Yeah, call, let's call right. Al. Let's call Manfred. We're gonna, we're gonna radio. Let's bring Manfred in here. Yeah. <laughs> one is a 1985 Arnold action movie. One is a 1990 sci-fi action movie that is a sequel to an Arnold movie. Uh, Commando is one. That's Val Verde. That's the fictional country, and the other is a sequel to an Arnold movie. Correct. And he's not in it. He's not in it. Um, we're gonna feel like idiots when we get this one wrong. No, this is a this is a tough one. Um, well, I was gonna say Predator Two. Predator Two is correct. Right? Yeah, is correct. But the tricky one, you know, most people don't remember that Bill Paxton has a brief part in Commando as a as an intercept officer. What? It's no, like kind of right. random. See, see, I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten about Bill Paxton in Commando. Yeah. Your clue, you know, eight nineteen eighty five. You know, I was like, all right, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. What's Commando? Is Commando a movie? I've never heard of it. I'm just <laughs> I just wanted to see I'm Phil's I'm watching baseball. it tonight. Are you? Again. Is that on no, the list just, of things I, to do? Just, it's it's just, actually I'm playing in the background. There's a 50-50 chance I'll be watching it at any given moment. <laughs> as you as said, I'm a less discriminating Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. But moving on to our final thoughts on this movie. Um, congratulations. You did very well in that quiz. Which yeah, was, Bill, uh, good. Thanks some, for, again, tough, you bring raised me up. You, you made you it. Know, I didn't know. I don't know anything ever. Is but is is this Arnold's last truly great film? I mean, I think I think it kind of is. But you know, the the run that he went on right is in, is insane. From Conan the Barbarian, the original Terminator, Commando, Predator, Twins, Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop, Terminator Two, True Lies. To me, those are all kind of you know classics or cult classics. And I would also throw in Raw Deal and and Red Heat in there as well, which I consider like you know kind of cult classics as well i particularly love uh red heat um that's an extraordinary run so it's not to do him any kind of disservice that does i mean that is just someone at the absolute peak of their powers what comes um, after this uh junior right well that, um, we've established the, that's well, a masterpiece with Bilga. <laughs> jingle all the way and then we get into your sort of your six days your Batman and Robin, um, end of days. Batman and Robin, collateral end damage. of days, collateral damage. Yep. Um, and then he's it's governor. He's off to the right. governorship governor and City, then he comes back. Right. Um, I mean, the Terminator sequels are complex to you know to talk about. Maybe maybe this is just a different conversation. But I will say one thing. I'm going to throw one like final comment out there. Actually, I generally have a real i struggle with the terminator sequels for me the series ended with terminator 2 however i actually think terminator genesis is actually pretty good huh that's my hot take right, i'm gonna step back now um, final thoughts guys on arnold at this movie and its legacy and anything you want to say well in terms of uh whether this was the last great arnold movie i would i would say i mean this is the best of the bunch of kind of 
the back end of his career. Late period, Arnold. But I have yeah. to say, I, I, I really like Terminator 3. Um, I actually think Terminator 3 is, is, a, is a very good movie that suffers from the fact that it's not Terminator and it's not Terminator 2. Um, and, and it's not James Cameron, but, but, um, Mostow's a good director. I like Mostow and I interviewed Mostow several years ago and, and, you know, we talked a lot about Terminator, Terminator three, you know, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a, I mean, the ending to Terminator, Terminator three is, I think one of the great all time. I like that ending a lot. Yeah. The ending's the best part. I mean, yeah. The balls to end that movie like that is, I think, incredible. Holy um, crap! I'm reading the Wikipedia. Holy crap! So I've never seen Terminator Three. You've never seen so Terminator. I'm, oh, you no. have to see Terminator Three. So uh, this is an interesting segue, which is I just like kind of lost touch with Arnold after this movie a little bit. Like, which is not like I didn't like him or whatever, but I think my interests changed a little bit. Like, and I, I did. Okay, that's not true. I did see Eraser, and I did see and kind of like End of Days. I like End of Days. It's Hyams. We're a Hyams pod. We're Hyams. We're Hyams boosters. He, we do he, like Hyams. He does Himes. enter into a period of decline. I think. I think you know that's obvious. And then he. I mean, he himself loses interest in making movies. That said, I also um, gotta say, I, I really like Escape Plan. Uh, mm. The movie he did with Stallone. He's tw- uh, Stallone, right? I, I really like. I, I love the Escape Plan. I actually think Escape Plan is like super underrated. Um, and I like the Last Stand. Um, I like the Last Stand too. You know, the Last Stand is actually a, a very strange, um, tonally odd, sort of start-stop, bizarre, twisted little action movie. That again, underrated because this is sort of him. This was during his period of trying to sort of come back into action movies. Yeah. And like the let, I mean, I think people were less interested in him, but also the landscape had completely changed. And so these movies were like, you know, I mean, Escape Plan was moderately successful. I think it has a bunch of like direct to video sequels, which I've never seen, but. Um, it does. It just yeah, came out with like a yeah. third or fourth one. Yeah. Like they, they keep coming. I remember reviewing these movies and I was like, these are good. <laughs> yeah, these are good. Yeah. He's doing really good work in kind of okay movies. Mm. But I think he's got at least one more like all-timer performance left in him because if he's with the right filmmaker and the right right project and right material at the right moment, some some you know, there's some last Act last stand for him. some last yeah. stand yeah for i him. really i really think so because he's actually improved as an actor yeah you know it's just that for the, the times have changed the action movie landscape has changed um budgets have changed and his sort of status and stature has changed i mean the industry is completely different he was just doing a netflix you know a, a netflix sort of series you know we're just in a different world but i do i love arnold i always will um, I love this movie. I love James Cameron. This is a classic, but kind of a perfect movie as a piece of, you know, entertainment with some really interesting thematic stuff to say. Uh, and I absolutely love this movie. And, and yeah, um, that's that's all I got, guys. My prediction, Arnold Schwarzenegger will be in one of the Avatar sequels. Wow. I, 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 do, I do not base that on any kind of knowledge, but I'm just like... Let's make it happen. Let's will that into existence. Bring, I love that. Bring him back as Quaritch's father, <laughs> you know? Or, or I have to say, I believe that at some point the Avatar sequels are going to zoom into the future. Um, and, uh, 
you know, man, that would be great. Like, and like, I think all the kids are going to grow up and stuff. Um, Phil's so, having another moment so, of ecstasy. So, 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 so it's like Arnold this. as just middle-aged about spider, <laughs> you know, uh, or Arnold as, uh, you know, senior spider. As long know? as there's no like CGIing of his face to like de-age him and shit, like just let him be him. Like you're you know, have him be the age that he is and the icon that he is. That would be such an amazing cinematic yeah. uh, moment, you know? Um, yeah, we love him. We, we, you know, I think we all love this movie, right? I love this oh, movie. Yeah. I think this movie is great. Yeah. Bilga, thanks so much for uh, coming you. on to talk to us about it. And we will, you'll be back. You'll I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I knew somebody had to do it. Just pulling that out of the pocket. You're not sending me to the cooler. <laughs> <laughs> Bilga Abiri, ladies and gentlemen, what a what a great guy, the king, one of my favorite people to talk to. Prince amongst men, wonderful to have him on the show, and uh, yeah, like loved his loved his analysis. This was this was great. Uh, what are we? Um... What do we got what coming we, up? What do we got? What do we got going on? I'm asking on, you like guys? I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, listen. Let's just you look before we talk about that. Uh, have you told all your friends that love action movies about this podcast? Because if you haven't, you're in big trouble. You're in big, big trouble. So please tell your friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, we don't have any new reviews to read this week. So if you want to write a review so we can read it on the show, we would love that. We did get an email that I'm just going to very, very quickly read, Phil. This cool. is from uh, a gentleman named Tommy, Tommy, who said, Hey there, huge fan of the podcast, and I'm flying through the back catalog before I get caught up. I'm curious about the, quote, tenants, we live in a Twilight world bit from every episode. Is this a reference to the movie Tenant or a reference to the movie Twilight? Neither of which I've seen yet, but I'm dying to know. Anyway, love, love, love the pod and can't wait continuing can't wait to continue digging into the diehard DNA. Tommy, thank you very much. Oh, cool. Thanks, Second Tommy. It is a reference to the movie Twilight, which is Phil's favorite film. He loves I'm all three. I'm actually going to start another he pod. Talks, yeah, he's going to start Twipod. It's going to be called Twipod. No, it's a Tenant reference, which is a movie that um, I deeply, deeply love. And, and the guest of the show, uh, Bill Gabiri, who just left us. And I love this one. Episode. I want to be included, but I'm not. I'm I know all, you love I'm, it. I'm you excluded can be any, you, from you're not your, excluded. your Tenant I romance. I just love Tenant. So, well, you can only, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. No, Tenant. And if you haven't seen it, Tommy, uh, don't let the haters tell you it's confusing it is not confusing it doesn't matter if it's confusing it's just a an absolute kick-ass original science fiction movie and we need more of those thank Absolutely. you for the email and to, a little plug tommy has a podcast called the curiosity hour i i, I think that's it I, at liam g billingham on twitter at diehard oab on twitter reach out to us email us at diehard oab at gmail.com phil uh, you're still on you're still on twitter right you love posting the your articles that no longer have uh headlines in them it's just a picture that's what's going on there now is it still on there yeah i i, I don't you know i'm, I'm so inept on these things yeah i'm, I'm there at philip gawthorne you can find me on he's on tweeting Twitter links to bants. helicopter articles just a lot of helicopter stuff it's um, helicopter porn yeah. i would describe it next time on the show phil we're doing clear and present danger it's die hard oh yes manfred we don't know yet oh sorry manfred <laughs> sorry manfred we don't we haven't figured that out yet but it's die hard on a something clear and present danger next time on the show it's going to be good. That was great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I really derailed you there. Sorry, buddy. Uh, we'll be back next time with some new FBI guys, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> 
Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co-hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at DieHardOAB. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast-loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard on a Blank. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.